I remember in ninth grade, sitting down at my desk in Photoshop class, reading a dusty old book by Ernest Holmes called This Thing Called You. My first read-through, I was interested, but skeptical. I mean, how positive can somebody get? It wasn't a gaudy kind of positivity, however. It was an idealistic and hopeful kind of positivity. There are two types of positive thinking to me. The first is the kind that invites you to pretend you're happy and to overlook all the SHIT. I just can't do that. But the second kind of positive thinking, the one I found in this work, was a challenging kind of positive thinking. One to me that said, in spite of apparent facts on the ground, you can be happy. And in fact, there is a way not to transcend your problems, but to transcend yourself, to a point that your problems look like little things way down there while you're secure in a higher point of view. Written in 1944, I also find this work of positive thinking quite brave. Here's this man, who had been writing for 25 years already about the science of mind, about how to use the laws of mind to improve your life and how God is more of an impersonal creative presence than a judgmental father. Here he is, in arguably the most terrible time in human history, World War II being fought, the memory of the stupidity of loss caused by World War I, very fresh in mind. And then the realization that through atomic power, mankind was for the first time able to completely destroy itself. And here's this man's most emphatic book about the power of love, the power of the creative spirit, and the great potential of every woman and man. Either he was incredibly naive or incredibly visionary and hopeful and prayerful, that we could all be better men and women, that through spiritual realization we could usher in a higher consciousness for humanity. He says, The world has reached a dramatic climax in its history. It has unlocked so much of the physical resources of the universe that unless this enormous power is used constructively, it can well destroy it. The world stands on the brink of a great abyss, a terrific regression, or if it chooses, faces the horizon of a glorious day, a new age. My first read-through of this thing called you, however, I was still suspicious, until quite powerfully in that Photoshop class, I read the following... Think for a moment about the few upon whom you've lavished particular affection. Now permit your imagination to include more. Say to yourself, what would it be like if these few whom I love so much were multiplied so that finally everyone I meet should arouse in me the same deep affection? Dare to lose your small affection, and you will find it multiplied a million times through greater union. At first I resisted. Love everyone the same? Wouldn't that mean that the ones I care for most would cease to be so special? Is this a hidden call for free love and open relationships? A deeper part of me knew what he was really asking. The answer was that you can find the same affection for all and still hold the dearest few. You can love everyone and still be monogamous. And in this high school classroom, I had a mystical experience. All of us students had worked so hard to be different. Jock, goth, teenage mom, computer geek, stoner, so on. But in that moment, we were one. It was powerful to me, and I tried not to slip into a role of teenage hippie. Dare to lose your small affection. What a great charge. Not just to love more, but to realize that consciously or unconsciously, so many of us live with a great resistance to love. We hold back. We fear intimacy. We don't trust. We think loving makes us vulnerable, which it does, but not in making us weak. For in truth, it makes us stronger. Dare to lose your small affection. I would, over the years, read this book again and again, and I'd take it more seriously. It's a great meditation book. Sit in quiet for a while, then read a few paragraphs. You can start from the beginning or just flip to a random page. You have just as much evidence of the existence of your soul as you do of the existence of an atom. 
While it is true that no one has ever seen this soul, it is also true that no one has ever seen love, beauty, or intelligence. You have an invisible body right now. You are as immortal now as you ever will become, and you should begin to live like an immortal being. Or, the spirit never rejects me. I accept myself. I realize my center in the divine mind. I know that I am one with all the good there is. I am one with all the power there is. I am one with all the peace there is. I know there is nothing in me that can condemn or be condemned. There is nothing in me that can judge or be judged. I know that my word uproots any sense of rejection from my consciousness. Holmes speaks in different voices in this book. At times his everyday teaching voice, but in other places from the place of a deep knowing within him. If you read it intellectually, you'll find much to criticize, but if you listen from that spiritual part of you that you may long to bring forth, you'll find it brought forth in good measure. You belong to the universe in which you live. You are one with the creative genius back of this vast array of ceaseless motion, this original flow of life. You are as much a part of it as the sun, the earth, and the air. There is something in you telling you this, like a voice echoing from some mountaintop of inward vision, like a light whose origin no man has seen, like an impulse welling up from an invisible source. And yet Holmes doesn't just lavish us, he challenges us. Let us think of a tunnel, one end of which is out in the open where there are fertile valleys, glorious sunshine, verdant vegetation. There is song, laughter, happiness, peace, and joy. Let us call this the Valley of Contentment. Let us call it the Kingdom of God. You are at the other end of the tunnel in a deep, dark cavern, overlooking a desert through which no refreshing streams flow. Somehow your attention has been drawn to the open end of this tunnel. With a curiosity that you did not put in your mind, you wish to investigate where this tunnel leads. What is at the other end of it? You peer into the tunnel. At first it seems dark, but occasionally a shaft of light shines through it and you catch a vision of the other side. You have a great longing to walk through this tunnel, to leave behind the dismal scene of discontent and unhappiness, and to enter into the joy that your brief glimpse has promised. For in this glimpse you have seemed to see yourself standing at the other end of the tunnel. Perhaps in this momentary vision you seem to have seen your own spirit. It seems as though something says, Yes, this is myself. How am I going to unite myself with myself? Then darkness closes in. Your vision has vanished. It must have been an illusion. Now there are two voices that seem to be talking to you. One voice says, You are following a mirage, an illusion. There's nothing real but this end of the tunnel. Accept things as they are. Make the best of them. Be as happy as you can, but do not hope. This is the voice of despair. The other voice is saying, Do not be afraid. Your vision is true. Enter the tunnel and walk through. There is nothing solid in it. That which obstructs your passage is vapor, the vapor of unbelief. It is dense only with the denseness of doubt. It is filled with the thoughts of the ages. There is a lamp within you already lighted. As you walk through the tunnel, the darkness will disappear because of this light. You will find that other half of yourself, and you will discover that this tunnel is your own mind. For me, more so than in any of his other works, Holmes challenges us to seek a greater way of living, of being, and of loving. He believes wholeheartedly in a great good available to all that we must earn through the expression of our consciousness. All that we are called to sacrifice is the lesser versions of ourselves and our beliefs that there isn't enough. Just keep right on knocking at the doorway of your consciousness until every no becomes a yes, every negation an affirmation, every fear a faith. And he also says, You rob no person when you discover your own good. 
You limit no person when you express a greater degree of livingness. You harm no one by being happy. You steal from no one by being prosperous. You hinder no person's evolution when you consciously enter into the kingdom of your good and possess it today. What a simple but profound way to live. To always seek the greater good. To always find more affection. To always believe in the capabilities of others as well as yourself. To do and to be better. When the time comes that nothing goes forth from you other than that which you would be glad to have return, then you will have reached your heaven. To lose my small affection. To seek the greater good. To have what goes forth from me only be in alignment with what I would seek to have return. I can think of no better rules for living than these.